promised. Happy how happy our journey above. How beautiful to walk in the footsteps of the Savior. That is just dripping with relationship, isn't it? It's about relationships. About following Jesus. Following in his footsteps. That we might experience the kind of relationships in our brotherhoods that our loving Savior experienced with his Father while showing us how to do relationships. So thank you for those uh, those songs and for the worship this morning, for the story to the children. There's something so precious about seeing a group of children like that together. Just to, to, I don't think we have any idea how blessed we are. We see a group of children like that and realize the, the generations coming on after us and the influence, the opportunity that we have to influence our children through relationships, to influence them to follow Jesus. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 22. Our brother encouraged us to uh, consider the honesty, the transparency that's needed uh, to have good relationships in a brotherhood. And that we need to have our relationships anchored in something that's real. Something that will endure. Um, what is it that is real and that will endure? The Word of God. Amen. The souls of men are real. They will endure. Is there anything else? The Word of God, the entire kingdom of God could be included in that, right? But what else is there in this time that is actually real, that will endure? Uh, the scripture says that there's going to come a time when everything that can be shaken, what? Will be shaken. And only the things that are real will endure for eternity. And so we live in a, uh, a world that is not real. In fact, we live in an economy that is not real. We live in an economy where we have a, 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 we have a stock market that has been propped up with funny money for a long time, and I think that probably sometime in the very near future we're going to see um, a loss of wealth in, in our country, at least, and maybe worldwide like we've never seen before. Why? Because of Galatians 6, laws that were written by the God of this universe, who says that everything that is not real, that is not grounded in his truth, will one day be shaken. Who said that? God said that. Does that make a difference? <laughs> yeah, it makes a difference. When God says something, things happen, right? Yeah, he promised that this world would be shaken. And so we have this great opportunity to uh, do relationships, to live in the, the kind of relationship that Jesus had with his father. And we have a, we have a part to do. Uh, Jesus accomplished what he needed to do when he was on earth, but we have a part to do. And we want to look at that a bit here this morning. I just want to follow up a bit yesterday. Uh, I really enjoyed the interaction with you brothers afterward, after our sharing time yesterday. And uh, someone just asked me, so you don't need to work on your marriage. Uh, because I said that yesterday. I said, stop working on your marriage, okay? And so I just want to clarify that, that what I was really trying to say is that if you focus on the dysfunction in your marriage, uh, you will magnify it. That's what I was trying to say. So I did not intend to say, don't. Take flowers home to your wife. Uh, 
I was not trying to tell you sisters not to uh, give your wife, your husband a, a, a back rub and, and, and care for him as you're called to in the word of God. Okay, I did not mean to, to uh, insinuate that, but I was simply calling our hearts to not focus on any dysfunction that's in your marriage, because all of our marriages have a measure of dysfunction. And as we follow Jesus and focus on Jesus, that dysfunction becomes less and less. The other point that I wanted to make is, uh, someone said, so we don't have expectations in marriage, because you'll remember that I pretty emphatically said, uh, lay down your expectations. Well, the difference between our expectations and God's expectations. The Word of God is full of expectations. The commands of Christ all project expectation on us as his people. And yes, we do have expectations. We expect that our brothers and our sisters will live in God's expectations. They will obey his commandments. We expect that. But what so often happens is that we place expectations on our spouse that are self-serving, that are for our interest, that have to do with uh, making marriage about what I need and expect out of marriage, rather than what really brings, brings glory to God. And we are, as individuals, so broken and so self-centered that we cannot establish our own expectations in marriage. We need to allow God to establish them through his word, through his commandments. He establishes expectations to us. So we lay down personal expectations while striving to obey the expectations that God has given to us. And I don't know if that brings any clarity at all to some of the things that we were talking about yesterday. But I just want to put that right up front. It's not that we live without expectations. But this is the truth. Is that Peter says this. He said, if you live before Christ, beholding the face of Jesus, and you have an unbelieving spouse, you will have a life, a spirit that is so compelling, a radiance, an aroma that is so compelling coming out of you, that without even saying a word or quoting the scripture, your unbelieving spouse will be able to see the gospel clearly portrayed in your life and come to faith in Christ. And the very longings of your heart are realized not through you, you projecting your expectations, but through you pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. Okay, that was what I was trying to say yesterday, and I just I hope that uh, that brings a little bit of clarity to it. And so today we want to talk a little bit about uh, relationships in the body of Christ. And my mind has gone into many different directions. As I thought about sharing here, I've had the great privilege of um, being in churches from across the, the northeast and into the northwest and into the midwest and some in the south. And it's been a tremendous blessing. <clears throat> but it's also been painful. It's been painful to the point that I don't really even know how to talk about it in a way that, that brings encouragement to your hearts that I want to bring. I want you to leave here today encouraged by the word of God and the promises of God. And so I want, I want to share carefully. So bear with me as I try to do that. Um, I, I, I just remember going to a church in Montana. And I love those people there, dear people, dear friends. I maintain a friendship with them. But as we shared through the week of meetings, I became aware that there's, there's, there's like a rift in this church. There's, there's discontent. There's, um, people 
grappling with things, asking questions. Who said? Um, when really, at the end of the day, it was like, I really want to be my own boss. I want to make my own decisions. I don't want anyone projecting any kind of expectations on me. I want to be who I am. I want to be able to express who I am. I want to be able to manifest the gifts that God has given to me. And all of that can sound so good and so religious. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think within about six months of the time that we spent there, uh, the church divided. And when there's uh, division like that in the church, it doesn't just happen overnight. It's something that builds. Because we've lost vision about what we're here for. We've lost a wonder of our salvation. Uh, we've, we've lost the uh, compelling witness to the community and to our children. And our children end up scattered because there's no clear vision that we're following. And so my message to you as a church is this. And I don't know the challenges that you face as a church, but I want to tell you something. We all face the same challenges because we're all made of the same stuff and we all face the same enemy. So I just want to say this, that we have a shepherd and he's a good shepherd. And he's speaking today through his word. And anyone who is determined to hear his voice will hear it. If you're determined to draw nigh to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will draw nigh. And so what I shared yesterday in regards to marriage, I share with you today in regards to the church. That if you are absolutely committed to pressing into the kingdom, striving, agonizing to enter into the kingdom, you will find the kingdom of God. You will find it. And it's doing very well. The body of Christ is doing well. His bride's doing well. But you have a responsibility. Jesus did what he had to do and needed to do. There's a great responsibility that rests upon us. A great privilege and a great responsibility. And we dare not take that lightly. And so I just want to share some things that, um, you know, I, I, I think probably 20-some years ago when I was called to the ministry, there was a different set of circumstances that tended to plague our churches. Uh, one of them was just a focus on materialism, and that's still true in many situations. But a lot of them was just there was a lot of a lack of a forgiving spirit and attitude in, in the relationships within the body of Christ. And I think the thing that we all face as Anabaptist people, people who are absolutely committed to radical obedience to the commands of Christ, I think the things that we face today is an unprecedented pressure from the flesh and the world uh, to assimilate into the mindset and the thinking of the world. And so I'm sharing from that perspective because that's really where we wrestle in our churches in America today. Um, we have been bombarded by the world's thinking and by the uh, American modern Christianity. Uh, Protestantism, particularly, has really infiltrated our churches through the ease of access to uh uh, doctrines that are not really biblically sound through books that, that come into our their homes, uh, through teachings that come into mm-hmm. our homes, that we have not tested them to the scriptures because we have become lax as a people of God in knowing God's word and, and being able to discern the spirit of God and being able to discern the brokenness and the wretchedness of our own hearts. And so my call, my passion in life is that we as God's people might renew our commitment and our passion to be about our Father's business. Because just as I shared yesterday in marriage, the same thing is true in the church. When we become passionate about Jesus and we 
give our life, our energy, our heart, our soul to being what he wants us to be and to being about our father's business. There is an incredible life that flows out through our relationships. And it's not like we work hard to do relationships. We agonize to walk before God in holiness. And the relationships that we experience in our brotherhoods become the fruit of His Spirit working in our hearts. Does that make any sense at all to you? And we can wear ourselves out trying to do relationships and miss the whole point of why we're here on this earth. And so I just try to hear my heart, and I won't get things said right this morning, but I trust the Spirit of God can somehow encourage your heart uh, just to renew, uh, as I want to in my own life and heart, to renew my commitment to walk with Jesus and to be about my Father's business. And in that context, as I seek to make that my lifestyle, to just enjoy and to celebrate the relationships that are ours. And so let's read. Um, <clears throat> let's have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, our Father, we are your sheep, your people, and we sit here in your pasture this morning. And we just pray that uh, your word, your food, the broken body of our Lord and Savior, his shed blood, would indeed be food and drink to us. We pray, Father, that our thoughts, our words would bring honor and glory to your name. And we pray that we might have a deep sense within our hearts that, as we sit here this morning, that we are indeed doing here on earth your will, just as your will is being done in heaven right now. You are being worshipped in spirit and in truth. And we just want to allow our hearts to be washed with your word. And with the truth of your spirit and with the reality of your blood. It's in Jesus' name that we pray for his glory. Amen. Looking at this passage in chapter 22, Jesus is intent on trying to help us understand what his mission is, what the kingdom of heaven is like, and what the church is all about. He's been very faithful in communicating to his people, to the people of his time. And he's been very faithful in recording it so that we in our time might have a clear vision of what God is doing on earth. Start reading in chapter 22. I think we'll read the first 14 verses. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for a son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come. And he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, and a remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard of it, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murders and burned up the city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready. But they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not 
on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how comest thou into hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then saith the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. I don't know if those words trouble your heart or not, but those words trouble my heart. The call has gone out. And the first part of my thoughts that I want to share with you is the fact that in the relationships of our church, in our brotherhoods, we have this call of Christ to be actively inviting, to be confessing Christ, to be uh, saying with our mouth, the truth regarding Christ. And, and we see in this parable that God has had, uh, that what he is doing, his big vision that he has is that he has this marriage feast plant. Is that past or future? Future. It's planned. It's still being planned. Guests are still being invited. And down through history, he has had his people who have proclaimed his truth. That solid Rock truth that will stand for eternity. They proclaim it. They declare it. They declare it verbally. They declare it with the life that they live. They declare it plainly, the scripture says, by both the words that they speak, by the spirit with which they live life, by their passion, by their words. They declare it, that there's a wedding feast coming. Your congregation has an incredible privilege to be a part of this long list of servants that God has ordained for the purpose of sharing his truth. Do you feel that privilege in your hearts this morning? You know, I read a story one time about Noriego, uh, the tyrant. It's been a long time since I read it down in the Panama, I believe it was, who took an American businessman captive and stuck him in a prison. And the United States government, I think it might have been under President Reagan, sent a, uh, a group of specially trained military people, I think they were Navy SEALs or, or Green Berets, in there with a helicopter. And while a pilot hovered above the building, this group of men went in there and they blew the cupola off with explosives and rappelled down into the building, blew the door open on the prison cell, and released this prisoner that was stuck in this prison that they feared for his life. And they brought him up and they lifted him up to the top of the building and into the helicopter and took him to freedom. And I want to tell you something. Those men, I think it was six Marines that accomplished that, who entered into that prison that was full of armed guards and delivered that man and brought him to freedom. There was an incredible relationship between that man that still endures today from what I understand. Can you imagine that? Being able to pull something like that off, being able to be a part of a mission to save somebody's life from an evil tyrant. Do you think they had to work at relationships and liking each other when they needed each other in a desperate way? Every man had his responsibility. Everybody, everybody, every man knew that I need to toe the line. I need to walk straight. I need to understand that this is my willingness to die that someone else might live. Every man understood that. 
He went into that situation knowing, I might see my friends give their lives to accomplish this mission. They knew that. Did they have to work at liking each other? Uh Uh-uh. And they don't today yet. They have this bond because they were all on a mission together. And they accomplished that mission. Are we getting the point? Are we getting the point? Our Savior told us one thing. He made it very clear. He said, I've come. I've come to destroy the works of the devil. He've come to set us free from the decorruption of our own flesh. He, he came to give us a passion that would be so great in our hearts that the attraction of the world was just like, it, it doesn't even pull our hearts anymore. It's there, but no, we don't. We don't find it pulling our hearts away from the Savior. I mean, we never let that happen. And we're committed to carrying forth with his work as his soldiers. We understand that we have an incredible mission. We understand that it calls for us to be willing to die daily and to take up his cross and to continue the work that he began here on earth. We're part of an incredible, incredible mission, brothers and sisters. And every one of you are needed for that mission. And every one of you have to. You're called to develop a strong passion in your heart for the mission that we've been given. And when we have that passion, we have that mission clear in our hearts, in our minds, there is there's something beautiful that happens. We need each other. And we know that deeply. And we love each other. And we love each other deeply. We don't have to be told. We just know. So I think the deepest need in our hearts is to realize that God has called us to be a people who verbally, continually call our hearts to faith and continually call the mission to God that Christ Jesus gave to us just before he ascended back to the Father, to call it continually before our hearts and before our eyes, to stir each other up. So much the more, so much the more as what? As we see the day approaching. The closer we get to that banquet, the more urgency there should be in our hearts and lives to bring as many in off the streets and the byways, out from under the bridges, out from the slums, to understand that there's a wedding feast that's being prepared. We need that passion renewed in our hearts, brothers. We need to be leaders, shepherds of our flocks, and calling our hearts to be obedient to that call in our lives. Recently in our little congregation there in West Virginia, prayer meeting just a few months ago, we were pleading with God to give us opportunities to verbally share his good news, the good news of our redemption, the good news that we've been saved from the prison, from a tyrant, from the flesh, from the world. And God answered that in so many ways in the following weeks. I just communicated with uh, my eldest son, and he's picking up a a, a military veteran this morning, uh, sitting in church there in West Virginia right now. He was there last Sunday for the first time. God opened up doors. It called for suffering. It called for getting up at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning and ministering to this man who was in a wheelchair and paralyzed, hopefully temporarily. But start praying that God would move, that he would give you a vision as a body of believers, and that he would move, that you would see 
people that on the street as eternal souls. That you would love people on the street as eternal souls and look for opportunities. You young men, you need purity in your hearts. Set your hearts on purity. I uh, counsel young men whose passion for Jesus is about that thick. It's about that deep. All it takes is a girl in a miniskirt on the sidewalk. And they're like, it just tears their heart away from their commitment to follow Jesus. What does it take to tear your, your heart away from your commitment to follow Jesus? Not even death, right? Is that right? You're committed that not even death will tear your commitment away from the purity that you want in your heart, that you might be a, a soldier indeed. Is that right? Yeah, that's what you want. And you need to keep confessing that before God. If you have a problem with purity in your heart, God has the answer for that. It's through relationships. It's through transparency. It's through being open and honest with your brothers and with your servants in your church, with your father, that God has given to you as an authority in your life. Being open and honest. If you have sin, we all have sin in our lives that we're dealing with. God is sanctifying us. Sin in your life. Here's what you do. You confess your sin. And what's the rest of that verse? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. You want a pure heart? You can have a pure heart. Don't settle for less. You make sure that the king's vision, the king's passion is yours. It happens through confessing with our mouth, constantly confessing with our mouth, constantly declaring the truth. Because faith cometh by hearing. And so many times you think, ah, that's the preacher's job to tell me. No, no. It's your job to be constantly preaching the truth to yourself and to others. And when you confess the truth, when you stand up in testimony and you give a declaration, I am committed to following Jesus. When you share your faith in what Christ has done for you with others, your own faith is built. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of the testimony, they refused to stop talking about their redemption, that they were saved from that tyrant. And their highest priority in life was not saving their physical life. Their highest priority in life was experiencing the life that comes through knowing Jesus. And they would rather die physically than to be separated in their connectedness to God. Brothers, we need a a fresh vision in our hearts for that. And when we have a vision for that, there's amazing things can happen in our brotherhoods. And so the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that God has a vision. He has a vision to have a bride for his son. And he has a marriage feast planned. And it's going to be like nothing that you can ever imagine. You want to be there. And there's an invitation that is going out. It's going out right now. It's going out to all generations. It's going out to the furthest ends of the world. You are the messengers. God's people, those who have been invited, who have accepted the invitation, are the messengers. And you are the messengers in this, our day, in your community, in your home. You're the messengers. Your workplace, you're the messenger. And we band together knowing that we need each other to be faithful in this responsibility. And furthermore, what we see in this passage of Scripture is that um, when that great feast happens, and we none know exactly when that's going to be, 
But I get this feeling that it may not be too far in the future. Some people say the disciples expected it in their day. I'm not too sure about that. I really am not too sure about that. Peter says, behold, the end of all things is at hand. You stay that out. You know what that means? That means you're just one breath away from eternity. I think they acknowledge that they weren't too sure exactly when this is going to happen. We don't know either. It might be in our great, 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 great grandchildren's day. We don't know, but it's going to happen. Regardless, you're going to be there. You're going to meet God. And if you have accepted this invitation, that's going to be something like you cannot ever imagine. But it's not just whether you've accepted the invitation. This was the next point I want to make. Is that um, we have faith in faith uh, in our communities. And let me ask you, does faith in faith save anybody? Does faith save you? We're saved by faith. Is that right? Through hope. So faith is important, right? But is your faith fixed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is the object of your faith the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it your profession of faith? This is an important question to ask. Who said so? God said so. He said you need to examine your faith. Because the object of your faith determines the validity of your faith. If the Lord Jesus Christ and his holiness, his command, his vision for you is not the object of your faith, if his word is not the object of your faith, it will not be a saving faith. Paul said it's possible for him, and it's possible for me to stand here and preach to you like I am this morning, and yet be a castaway. If my faith in Christ is not actually doing something in my life to sanctify me and to equip me for the work of the ministry. If it's not making me a holy person, it's not a saving faith. If Jesus Christ is indeed the object of my faith, it will be a saving faith. And so the next thing we'll look at is the fact that somebody showed up without a wedding garment. How important is a wedding garment? On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is a wedding garment? At least. Right? Thank you, brother. At least. I was hoping someone would say 100, 200. Thousand. I mean, it's, it's like life or death, right? Who said so? God said so. Jesus said, this man came into this wedding and he did not have a wedding garment on. Is it possible that we can sit at the communion table and not have a wedding garment on in time? Yeah. That's a scary thought, isn't it? And so we better find out what the wedding garment is. Ecclesiastes tells us that we should always have white garments and always have our heads anointed with oil. This should become a passion of your heart to have white garments and to have your head anointed with oil. You have to understand the culture of the day that when you invited someone to a wedding, that what you did was you provided them with a special garment for the wedding. You made it available for them. And that's what this is referring to. Jesus is speaking to a people in a culture where that was the practice. If you're invited to any special banquet by an important person, they invited, they gave you, they provided for you the garment that was suitable for that occasion. And it was almost always a white garment. And you had the responsibility to keep that garment in immaculate condition, prepared 
for that particular occasion. And so we have throughout the New Testament many different references to having uh, garments that are spotless. You know, Jude tells us that we should be active in inviting people to the banquet to experience the Lord Jesus Christ in preparation for the banquet. We should hate even the smell of what? What does it say? Smell of smoke. You pull them out of the fire and you hate the smell of smoke. And the problem in our Anabaptist churches today is that we have become so accustomed to, we have become so comfortable with walking so close to the world that we don't hate the smell of smoke anymore. We become accustomed to it. Just like you, you drive in here and you might smell chicken houses for 15 or 20 minutes. And then you don't smell it anymore. I don't smell it anymore. I smell it when I walked out of my cabin this morning. I don't smell it anymore. That's okay if it's chicken houses or turkey barns. It's not okay when it comes to the world. It's not okay. And that's one of the great weaknesses of our hearts. We become accustomed. We no longer have the terror of the Lord. If we know the terror of the Lord, we persuade man in earnest. And one of the things that's missing in our, in our witness, in our testimony, in our living is the earnestness. Paul says, we know the terror of the Lord. We know that God is a God of grace, but he's also a God of justice. We know that there's a lawgiver. There's one lawgiver, and he's given the law. And if you do not respect his law, you're going to come under his judgment. But he's provided a wedding garment, and you want that wedding garment. And you want to care for that wedding garment with a great deal of care. It's your responsibility. Nobody else can do it for you. They can help you. And that's what the church is for. And that's where relationships in the church come in. Where we live in transparency before each other. Where we seek to help each other. Where we seek to help each other anchor our um, lives in love and obedience. So along with our confession of faith, along with our verbal uh, sharing of the gospel of Christ in our personal lives, there needs to be a commitment to love and obedience. And it's through love of Christ and obedience to Christ that we keep our garments spotless. So those are my main two points this morning. One is that we're invited to be a part of this grand invitation team to call people with urgency to the king's banquet. And the second is that we're called, we're privileged to, to be invited to live together in such a way that we help each other uh, have a passion for Jesus, a love for Jesus, a love for God the Father, and that we actually obey God. How important is it to obey God? And if you disobey God, what does that do to your garment? That puts a wrinkle in it, doesn't it? That puts a spot in your garment. And what is Jesus trying to do right now? He's trying to wash his bride so that their garments are without a wrinkle and so their garments are without spots and blemishes. Why? Because he wants you to be a very real living testimony of what his character is like. He wants people to be able to look at your life and at your brotherhood and go, wow. So that's what God is like. The spirit that I feel radiating from that person when I talk to him or to her gives them an aroma of Jesus, aroma of peace, an aroma of joy.
in a chaotic world, there's peace, there's joy. I wonder why that is. I wish I had that. And it's like salt. Makes you thirsty to drink at the fountain of living water. God's plan is great. But we have a responsibility to love and to obey. And to give ourselves in complete love, mind, will, our emotions, our strength, everything to God. What does Jesus say? Then if you do that, you're going to love your neighbor. And everything in life hangs upon that. So everything comes back to the point of whether or not I am absolutely committed to making the Lord Jesus a passion of my life. All the, all the relationships in our brotherhood come back to that one point. I just want to read a few verses to you. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And what is the standard? What is the standard for our love for one another? The way you want people to love you? There's a, this is a new standard. This is a new standard. The golden rule is good. We teach our children that. But there's a new standard. I want you to love each other the same way that I have loved you. And that means, as John says in 1 John, he says, Just as Jesus laid down his life for us, so we lay down our lives for the brother. When we come to the brotherhood, it's no longer about me. It's about how can we together... Give an accurate picture of the character of God, the mission of God, and the passion of God that people come to freedom, that people come to healing, that they come to sanctification, that they come to treasure that garment that has been given to them through the grace of God. So it comes through love, and it comes through obedience. Peter says this in 4.8 of 1 Peter, and above all things, that means more important than anything else, have fervent love among yourselves, for fervent love covers a multitude of, it says sins in the King James Version, I think it means faults, dysfunction, a, a whole multitude. So, you know, he doesn't say, go find yourself a church that doesn't have any dysfunction. He doesn't say that, does he? No, no, no. He says, you make sure that there is fervent love. This is a God-like love. This is a Jesus-like love happening in your hearts towards your brethren. And if that is true, it impacts your relationships in a real powerful way. And here's how it impacts them, is that it covers. You actually hide the dysfunction in your brother and sister's life. It doesn't mean you ignore sin in their life. No, no, no. We deal with sin, and we call their attention to it. Matthew 18 is a beautiful instruction to us from Jesus and how we deal with sin in the brotherhood. So we don't ignore sin, sin unto death. But there's a lot of sin, just dysfunction in our hearts and lives. And John tells us that we pray for each other. And if we pray for each other, God brings maturity into our lives. And we overcome those dysfunctions in our lives. And so we, it isn't like we're satisfied to be who we are. But we're not focused on who we are. We help each other to focus on who Jesus is. We, we, we help each other to move towards maturity in our lives emotionally, spiritually, so that we can give a true accurate picture of God. And his passion for the things that are eternal. Through our own passion. Through our own heart. How important is it that we are obedient? Jesus says very clearly. That if you love me. You will do what? 
you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says that a number of places. I think it's in chapter 15 and uh, chapter 10. I think chapter 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I want to bring us around to this because I think this is one of the deep doctrinal things that I'm not saying I understand it all clearly. But here, here's Galatians tells us this, that Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for what? Righteousness. Exactly. In other words, we have a righteousness account. Is that right? In fact, the judgment must first begin at the house of God. What I believe that means, and I might be wrong on this, is that right now in heaven, your attitudes, the things you do, the words you speak, are all being judged. And someday, for the Christian, there's going to be a judgment, not as whether you're not you're saved. That's already determined if you have faith in Christ, but of rewards. And that judgment, as I understand it, is happening in your lifetime. Okay, that's what I think that means. I could be wrong. I, I open my heart up to you, brothers, for, for other, further instructions on that. But here is the point, is that Abraham believed God. Now, did Abraham just believe God? Did he just command his, his family to follow in the ways of God? He obeyed God. And that was accounted to him for righteousness. It was added to his account as righteousness. Now, it's interesting if we go to Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5. Because there it tells us that Abraham was not saved by circumcision, by keeping the law. In other words, there is nothing you can do to save yourself. You can't work to save yourself. You can't do it. You can't keep the law well enough to save yourself. You cannot be religious enough to save yourself. You can't do it. But here's the whole point of of Romans, is that if you have true, genuine faith, if your faith is genuine, there's something going to follow. And that is this, a passion for God that in your heart motivates you to Obedience, immediate obedience. You want to obey God so much, you can't, you just, you just, you just do it. I mean, your whole heart is set on obeying God. And that is the whole test of whether your faith is a real faith or not. It doesn't motivate me to obey God and to walk in, in humility. It doesn't motivate me to be a person who is merciful and who is humble and who loves justice, the truth that is in Christ. And this has been the test for every person down through the ages. Uh, Noah was not saved through the law. The whole point of it is, is that Abraham was justified before the circumcision law was given. That's not what saved him. But he was obedient to circumcision because he loved God. He was very obedient. Offering Isaac isn't what saved him. But it was accounted to him for righteousness because he was so passionate about doing what God wanted him to do that even though he did not fully offer his son Isaac on the altar and take his life, yet it was accounted in God's record as if he actually did it because his heart was to be obedient. And we need a vision of that in our day. What we've done is we've bought into the Protestant idea that if you um, believe and you say the right words and you pray the right prayer, that somehow the righteousness of God is then draped over you and that Jesus Christ will forever see you in the light of that profession of faith that you made you know god's plan for that for you is much greater than that it's that his garment of righteousness that's granted to you through his grace it's all of grace might come to you and be something that you care for in such a way that it is kept without wrinkle 
and without spot until that great day when you find yourself in that feast. And for that, we need help. And, and in that, we find there's often conflict and there's often friction as we try to help each other keep our garments spotless and to keep the wrinkles out of our garments. Isn't there friction there? Because what that's called is making practical application to the truth of God's word. And how do we take practical and make practical application from God's word into our lives in a brotherhood? You know, after all, we have to live together. It's not just about getting together on Sunday morning. It's about doing the will of God together. It's about advancing the kingdom of God together. It's about being one heart and one soul together in our prayers, that our prayers be not hindered in the brotherhood. And we read that in the early book of in, in Acts in the early church where they had a heart to be together. And I just want to share a few things with you that I think are important. One is that God has ordained. Let's just turn together to First Thessalonians. We're using this clock here, by the way, the one here talk to your right. And I think lunch is at 12. So just relax a bit. First Thessalonians five. First Thessalonians 5. God has given authority to His church. He's given responsibility to the shepherds of the flock. He's given responsibility to every one of you. Every one of you is a leader in the church. Do you recognize that? Mothers are leaders in their home. They've been commissioned. They've given authority to, to, to rule their home, uh, to establish a, a spirit of Christ in their home. And they've given the fathers a responsibility. You're a leader in your home. They've given um, those who are ordained to, pl- to positions of uh, shepherding the flock. They've given them responsibility uh, to help us to anchor our heart and our soul in that rock that will not move. The truth that is in Christ. And a primary responsibility for all of you as leaders, and you're all leaders, is to help other people and help your own heart to stay anchored in the truth that is in Christ. Okay? That's your responsibility. That's how we, as a church, prepare to do Discipline. You don't go free someone from a prison in Panama unless you're a very disciplined, well-trained person. And we need people who have a vision to be disciples, who walk in the ways of Jesus, whose hearts are quiet and learn to rest in the salvation of God, in the grace of God, who realize it's a work that God is going to do in our hearts and in our brotherhood. He's going to use our brotherhood if we do our part at keeping our garments spotless. And we all need to work together on this. So let's just read this passage of scripture. This is in first, we're in first Thessalonians chapter five. Let's just start, uh, verse eight. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and to be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow after that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, 
Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And all of us read together. Verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus. Do you see the passion in Paul's voice? Do you hear the passion in his writings? What is it that he wants you to do? He wants you to be holy, holy, sanctified. Your spirit, your soul, and your body. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And so all of us as a, as a brotherhood, and particularly those who are shepherds over the flock, are called to make sure that we are moving forward in our maturity. I had someone recently, and they were in their 50s, said, well, I'm just a baby in Christ. And I said, okay, but you've been a Christian since you were 12 years old. What's going on here? What's happening? Something's wrong. The problem is you like being a baby in Christ because being a baby in Christ allows you to just focus on yourself, on your dysfunction. It's time for you to repent of your self-focus and grow up. And I had to tell myself that a number of times in life. You know, you're, you're, you like focusing on, your, on yourself. You like reflecting on how dumb you, uh, how, how, how bad you failed the last time you tried to preach. You like doing that because there's something really feels good about self-pity. You know that? There's something feels good about it until you get your eyes back on Jesus and you repent and you move towards the cross. But Paul is praying that we would be sanctified. He says the way this happens is in the context of the brotherhood edifying, this is verse 11, that we are committed to edifying each other and the second thing is, is that we are committed to doing the things that bring peace in the brotherhood. Now, I want to say this. We have a farm, and we have some beef cows, and we chop some corn, and we have these three wagons, tandem silage wagons that we haul um, silage up and down the road. We farm some, some farms that are about five eight, miles from us, and just Thursday I was, we finished up chopping, and I was coming down Route 13, and, and we have two wagons that tow just like a shadow. And so I'm driving the truck, the F-350, and I'm watching my mirror, and these, these wagons just tow perfectly. It's such a pleasure. There's no problem, no stress. It's just like the power of that truck. It's not my power. It's the power of the truck. All i got to do is just try to help keep this thing between the lines and make sure I don't run it off the road. And everything goes great. But this one wagon, and we don't know why. We've looked at it. We've had 15 counseling sessions with it at least, and nothing changes. But this thing, you're going down the road, and anytime you're on the flat or downhill, that thing just goes along all saying, ooh, it just cuts off that way, and it cuts off this way. And we call it the wiggle wagon. It just, it, it, there's no stability in its life. It just, you never know when it's going to just, choo. And the thing that's so terrible about it is, I'm driving down the road, and here comes this dear lady, and lots of people, and they see this wagon, and it never goes across the line. It never wiggles that far. But it, it scares people to death because they think it's going to cross the line. It's like you know, people run off the road trying to make sure that it don't cross the line and hit them. I don't know if you ever drove. How many of you men ever pulled a wiggle wagon? It's just something that just doesn't tow right. And you scare people to death if you're going very far or very fast. It's just like it, it, it destroys the peace on the road. And I don't like that. I don't like that. I shouldn't like that. And I go into our brotherhoods, and you know what? We can be a wiggle wagon in our brotherhoods. The leaders in our church, they have a responsibility. 
And that's to try to help you stay connected to the Holy Spirit, the power in our lives, and to stay between God's ordained lines. Is that right? Do you all have a responsibility? Do you have a responsibility as fathers to do that? How about mothers? Yeah. Yeah. And wiggle wagons tend to be papal. You and me, we were all there at one point, not mature in Christ, where we respond to life through our emotions or through our intellect rather than the truth that is in Christ. And our leadership has a very real responsibility. Our fathers and our mothers have a very real responsibility, the whole church, to help people bring their emotions and their intellect back and anchor into the truth of Christ. That's our responsibility. That's how we keep peace in the church, isn't it? We labor to keep peace in the church. And I remember when I came to the church, my star just so enjoyed the story there last night. John and Bev shared, and I wish I could have heard Brother Earl's. If I'd have known you were sharing, I'd have been here earlier on Friday. But I just so enjoyed the story, the reminiscing, telling the stories of how God worked in our lives. He's led us on the journey. And in my own life, a bit, just a bit, you know, I, I grew up in a home. My mom was not from any kind of a, an Anabaptist background, and my father uh, did not choose to serve the Lord till he was uh, married and had children. I was born, and he decided he wanted to serve the Lord. He looked around, and he said, you know what? There's dysfunction in that church. 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 I must be the only one that's right. And so he began a journey of traveling, and we traveled to Snyder County and then to, uh, from there to Arkansas and to Indiana. We lived in a number of different places in Indiana. And at the end of the day, Uh, We were totally broke financially, and my mother was in a mental hospital. And we as children were put out to other homes, which caused a lot of emotional problems in those of us who were um, born at that time. Uh, But God was good to us, and he sent some of those very dysfunctional people into our lives. Those very dysfunctional people uh, brought us back to Pennsylvania and helped us get back on our feet. And... uh, we went to dysfunctional churches from time to time, but most of the time we just spent at home uh, listening to criticism of churches and how dysfunctional they were. And at the age of 16, um, we didn't have friends. We weren't supposed to have friends because our friends might influence us a bad way. But at the age of 16, almost 17, was the first time I walked into our church where I'm a member now, and I felt such love. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. Just like, Wow. These people love each other, and they love me. They love my sister that went with me. Went home and told my dad we're going back again next Sunday, which was not, uh, it was not, hard, it was not easy for him to accept. But we did. And eventually I joined this, this perfect church. I found the perfect church that he was looking for. He just didn't see it. And then suddenly, you know, I was there a couple of years, and suddenly I realized not everybody here is happy being here. There's people here that think the ministry is just off the rocker. They think they're all set on keeping traditions and, and enforcing man-made rules. And, oh, the list goes on and on. You could find a number of people that are dissatisfied. And I listened to all this, these voices, all these voices. There's a lot of voices. And they're none without significance. They all have the ability to impact you. So be careful what voices you listen to. Make sure you're listening to the Spirit of God. And things kept heating up over the next couple of years. And pretty soon some families started leaving. And then some more families started leaving because they would talk to the ones that left. And pretty soon we were down to just a handful of people. And I'm like, what's this about? And we could all fit in one small room in a church. In a house. We didn't have a church building. We were just meeting in a home. 
and we could all fit in one room. And I was like, what's this about? Was I disillusioned or what? But the one thing was, is that through that all, I heard the voice of, of God speaking. And I knew the heart of a couple of those servants was that we might know God. That we might set our hope in God. That we might tremble at his word. I knew that. I knew that. And so I kept going back Sunday after Sunday, listening. I got married, and we kept going back Sunday after Sunday. I said, well, there's truth being shared here. I hear these other voices, but there's truth being shared here. And we kept feeding on that truth and feeding on that truth. And eventually, uh, we started to love each other in a very real way. Not because we decided we were going to love each other, but because we love God. And it just radiated out. And then the church began to grow, and eventually I was called to be a deacon. And uh, then a minister, and then later I was ordained there to, to give oversight to the church. And in that process, suddenly you realize, you know what? This is a rather messy process. This whole church thing is kind of messy. You know, there's a lot of pain here. There's a lot of dysfunction here. But Jesus said he loved his bride. He's going to build his church. So it's not about what I'm going to do. It's about us calling our hearts together to keep our eyes on Jesus and to keep our hearts anchored in his word. It's not about me. It's not about you. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And I'm going to build upon that rock that was hewn out of a mountain without hands. And if you dig deep and you lay your life as a building block on that foundation, it doesn't matter what kind of storms come to you. Uh, I'll, I'll call you, Jesus said, a wise man. And you're going to stand the test of the storms that you face in life. So, I want to give you a couple things that just, uh, when I was a young person, I was able to observe the leaders in our church and some of the struggles they went through. Eventually, God blessed, and uh, our congregation over a period of 20 years grew to uh, over 200 people. At one point there, we had, I think it was 101 or 102 youth between the ages of, was it 1 and 16. And at some point, we decided about... Uh, five, six years ago to, to do outreach. And so we have now a small group again, but we uh, fellowship back and forth a lot with the, the larger group that we came from. But here's some of the things that I just want to share with you that can happen. So um, <clears throat> I remember, you know how it is. The influences of the world are just constantly trying to press in on us. And I'm saying this in part because I don't even know who all the ordained people are here. I don't even ask you to raise your hands. I think John Note, for one, is, is part of the, the servant team here. But I just want to say this in defense of them, that, you know, I remember the days I would go share a message and somebody would come and have criticism for me. I mean, good criticism is okay, but, you know, if you put someone down, it can hurt. And I was like, okay, so you spent yesterday fishing with your children down by the lake. I spent my day in the study seeking the Lord. I didn't get it said right. I know that. You don't need to tell me. But just think about this. Um, we do sacrifice. Your servants here sacrifice. And I hope that you're a congregation that honors your servants. That's what the scripture calls you to, to honor them. They won't get it done right, but honor them. Understand that they're shepherds and they care about their sheep. They want you to be anchored in the truth. And sometimes it gets messy. Sometimes they don't get it done right. And so just give you an example. A young man who failed morally, repeatedly. 
And after two years of discipleship, fasting with him, praying with him, earnestly trying to help him to get his eyes on Jesus and not on his own failures, earnestly trying to help him to get a passion for holiness in his life, we brought it to the church, and the church brought discipline, and he was uh, excommunicated from the fellowship. And so then he turns his attention to uh, some of the, you might say, mistakes or some things that could have been done different in the process. Did you ever see that happen? And suddenly, with those who would give him an ear, the things that the, the leadership could have done a little different or a little better become a greater sin than immorality. Is there something wrong with that picture? But that's what happens when we're not anchored in truth. And those are the kind of things that we face, and we have to bring their hearts back and say, wait a minute, yeah, we make mistakes, but God's word is truth. And we have to be anchored in God's word. And that brings the peace back. That can be that wiggle wagon that comes through the congregation. You know, have you ever noticed how that when a person's heart is bent towards the world, that we tend to use uh, what we consider family um, events to kind of express ourselves where we're really at, where our hearts are really at? I remember the day, just observing the elder uh, in our church there before I was called to that position. I learned so much from him. And, that, you know, we, we believe this is a principle of separation. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be different in the world. Is that right? Does following Jesus separate you from the world? And what is one of the principles of following Jesus that separate you from the world? Here's one of the principles. He did not cry in the streets. And the early church took this very serious. They said Jesus did nothing to say, hey, look at me. Here I am. All right? And so what the early church said was we take that same principle and we apply it to every area of our life. We don't go out and buy flashy clothing. We don't go out and buy flashy vehicles and say, hey, here I am. Look at me. We don't do that because we want to be like our master. Right? And then churches go. Yeah. And so when weddings come along, what often happens is we tend to show our true colors. Right? And I remember this time when a young girl in our church picked out a dress color for those who were going to stand up with her in the wedding. And one of the sisters said, I have a conviction against flashy colors. And I know our church consciousness is against flashy colors. I can't wear that. And the young lady said, well, then I'll have to choose someone else to stand up with me. And our bishop very wisely said, went to that young lady and said, I understand this is what happened. And she said, yeah, what's wrong with that? He said, here's what's wrong with that. What you are saying is that you value the color of your dress more than you value your friendship to that sister. She said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. That's what you're saying. You place a higher value on having the color you want for your dress than you do on your relationship with that sister. What is the value you place on relationships? Are you willing to lay down your life for the consciousness of the church and for the relationship with that sister. Or do you want to be what you want to be and do what you want to do? And that sister hung her head. She's seen the truth. She anchored her desires in truth and not in her emotion. And today she would look back with embarrassment. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm sharing things with you that are almost intimate to me. But there are things that are real. These are things we struggle with. And I, I see it in other churches. Recently, we were out in the Midwest. And so this proposal was given that, you know, 
Our church has, and I'm not talking about our church, I'm talking about this church. We have the King James Version. It's just been that way for years. And someone within the church says, look, the King James Version is so hard to understand. I mean, our converts, if they could have a modern version, they could grow exponentially in their spiritual walk. And we're holding them back by having this King James Version. This is a wiggle wagon, you know. And so we have a congregation that's seeking to grow in Christ-likeness. But all of a sudden, we have this huge thing throw it at us like, oh, wow. And some people have strong feelings about the King James Version. I don't personally myself, but I have some strong feelings about some other versions. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, we're going to ram this wiggle wagon down through the church because we think that, we think that, we feel strongly that our converts could uh, benefit from a different version. You see where I'm going with this? And so here's my, here's my advice to them. Uh, are, did you get saved reading the King James Version? Well, yeah. Did you grow spiritually? At least some? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that the, your converts, through love and through a proper vision of Christ, can, can grow and can dig into the Scriptures and, and grow? Well, maybe. Yeah, I think they can. I think they can. And so the love, the spirit of peace... Doing the things that make for peace. We get these grand ideas. We're gonna, we get this restlessness within our hearts. And we wrap that restlessness in spirituality. A better way. And we run a wiggle wagon down through the church. And we can destroy relationships. We make our idea, our superior passion for Jesus, a greater deal than the death and the resurrection, the mission that Jesus gave us as his people. And we can destroy unity and we can destroy peace in the church. And that's why we're told that the whole total sum of everything comes down to this one thing. To do justly. Love. It's in Micah. Love. Mercy. And the third one is to walk humbly. To walk humbly. So there you have it. There you have it. To do justly means to build your life on that solid rock to the plumb line that Jesus Christ has established. To love mercy means that deep within your heart, you're committed to developing the love of God that is compassionate towards all men, particularly those that are out of the way. And that that compassion then expresses itself inwardly in your heart and outwardly in your actions. It's what drives your good works. You were created for good works. And to walk humbly has to do with the disposition of your heart before God, before your brothers and sisters. To learn to be quiet, to be restful in your spirit. You're not the one who's running the show. Jesus is. We're about learning to bring our hearts into subjection to his truth. And anchoring deep in that truth. We walk humbly. We bow our hearts at the foot of the cross. Well, we still got a ways to go. So let's go, according to the clock at least, let's go to Revelation to finish. We won't take the whole book. We will go to chapter 19. That's actually pretty close to the end of the book. So we'll get to lunch here before real late.
chapter 19 of Revelation. I share this with you because we live in amazing times. I share this with you to encourage you to hold your heart to the vision that Jesus has for his, his, his people. Hold your heart to it. I share this with you because it's important that we as Christians rest in his grace and his salvation. That there's a grace rest in our hearts. That we're not distracted from what we're about. I go into congregations that um, are like focused on the end times. And it's all about eschatology. And that's great. I love eschatology. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. But it's not the favorite. Because that's sometime in the future. It can become a huge distraction in your life. And allowing the holiness of God to be worked in your heart and life and in your brotherhood right now. The big event, the main theme of what's happening in time right now is that God is saving souls for eternity. And we cannot forget that. Eschatology is great, but don't sit bug-eyed in front of the news trying to figure out what the next thing is happening and how soon he's coming. Just get busy. Have a passion to have as many people invited to the feast and have your own garments as spotless as possible when he does come. Let's read this passage here. 19. Verse 6. Let's start with verse 5. This is what we as the church are doing right now. This is what we're preparing for. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his saints, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many watchers, and as the voice of a mighty thunder, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints, of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they that are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And then we see an appropriate response. He falls on his face. And, of course, he's, he's gathered up. And told not to worship him, but to worship the one true God. And that is our call, that is our desire. Let's go on to chapter 22. And verse 17. Chapter 22 and verse 17. This is the invitation. This is the invitation that the church sends forth and is sending forth. And the spirit and the bride... Say, come. Let him that hears say, come. Let him that is the thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. If we're committed to the passion of Jesus, being passionate about Jesus' passion, we're going to be a part of that compelling invitation to come. We've tasted and seen that God is good. We've tasted it. We've drank from the fountain. We've experienced healing in our own mind, in our own emotions, in our spirit. We're in the process of being sanctified. We have a testimony to share. Our testimony, along with a life of obedience, 
and love is a compelling invitation. Let's take that opportunity to be messengers for the king very, very seriously. And out of that compulsion within our hearts to keep our garments white and to keep our garments spotless, free from the smell of the world, free from the wrinkle of the world, there will be a grace flow through your brotherhood that will be amazing. No, it isn't that you won't have wiggle wagons come through, but you're going to have the, the strength, you're going to have the wisdom to bring your heart and their heart together and anchor it into the rock that helps us to grow up together to where Christ becomes head and Lord of all. So God bless you, this congregation. It's been just a tremendous blessing to be here. Let's not forget our calling. Let's not forget who we are. And let's not forget to keep our garments spotless for that moment. God bless.